0: thank you guys for joining us tonight. I am Dr. Robert Richard. I am the medical director for Northeast Georgia's Bariatric Surgical Program and the senior bariatric surgeon at Long Street Clinic Center for Weight Management. I have with me today Dr. Alex Nguyen, an experienced robotic surgeon in bariatric surgery at Northeast Georgia Physicians Group. We're going to talk to you about the complexities of obesity and the treatment options. The housekeeping event, um, things. Uh, if you'd like to ask questions, please enter the questions and we hopefully will have some time to get to those at the end. Uh, and their information on obtaining the CME is gonna be on the last slide. So you might wanna stick around for that. Um, our objectives, we're really gonna talk a little bit about the pathophysiology of obesity, some of the relationships between BMI and severity of the disease, common comorbidities, obviously the treatment options, um, the necessary support services that, that are involved in bariatric surgery. really talk about the long-term care of patients with the uh, metabolic surgery. I always like to begin a bariatric talk with obesity and why we treat it. Obesity is a disease, not a lifestyle choice. This is a complex, multifactorial, chronic, relentlessly relapsing disease with extensive health consequences. We know that this disease is related to metabolic conditions, psychological conditions, cultural, behavioral, so- societal. We also know there's some genetic components. So this multifactorial disease, really hard for us to, to pigeonhole. Yet, it gets a different name. It gets a it's a bad rap in 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 our society. Patients are looked upon as if this is their fault, as if they're lazy, um, as if if they could just exercise, they could control this disease. But I think we're finding out more and more information about this disease, and there are some good studies that that that, that indicate between fifty and seventy percent of obesity is genetic. Uh, in some form. We know that if you raise twins apart they tend to have the same body style, even if you raise them in different countries. We know that if you have two adult obese parents, you're much more likely to be an obese adult than if you've got two genetically thin parents, even if you're raised in the opposite type of family. Now I saw a patient in the office just yesterday um, He was in tears because she was in my office feeling as if she had failed and her family um, really telling her, you need to do this on your own, you need to exercise, you need to to just diet a little bit more. Then she started telling me about her family. Her father's 450 pounds, he's diabetic. He's got peripheral vascular disease, he's got hypertension. Her mom's 300 pounds, very similar medical condition. And she's got some young children so for her, this is a tough thing to, to, to come to grips with. She sees where she's going and she's trying to find a way out of it. So I think, like to think of this as that type of a, of a chronic disease. It's really hard for these patients to come to grips with, but that's kind of what we face on a daily basis. We really know that modest weight loss, not just weight loss surgery, small amounts of weight loss can have a considerable medical benefit for the patient. Even 20, 30 pounds for some patients can get them off of blood pressure medications, can improve their diabetes, can improve their hyperlipidemia. And we know that this is a disease that has consequences and we know that if we try, we can get weight loss, we can affect those consequences. But our options are really just diet and exercise, lifestyle changes, pharmacotherapy, and then bariatric surgery. And obviously we're here to talk a little bit more about bariatric surgery. But how do we? how do we, what tool do we use to decide what, what option these patients have. But we don't need an MRI with our patients. You don't need a blood test. You kind of just need a scale and a take measure. We use body mass index to kind of determine our patient's risk, and we have for years. And we all have a sense that the higher BMI is more dangerous. Well, how, how dangerous? This is an article from 2010, so not recent, but certainly um, um, apropos of this discussion. They looked at 19 studies, 1.5 million Americans, 19 to 84, and they looked at the association between BMI and all-cause mortality. It was a very well-adjusted study. It's in the New England Journal of Medicine. They adjusted it for age, physical activity, alcohol consumption, education, social, economic, marital status, all those things that we know can have an effect on a person's health. Well, the bottom line of the study is that it shows us in really good numbers, what happens when that BMI rises? This is all-cause mortality, regardless of the person's medical condition. Got a BMI between 25, 20 to 25, you're at the lowest mortality rate. 44% increase if your BMI is between 30 and 35. It doubles between 35 and 40. Look what happens when it gets to 40. We get a much bigger jump in morta- mortality. And as we see above 40, we get more of an exponential rise in that mortality rate. Those patients with the BMI in the 50s and the 60s, their mortality rate, relative mortality rate is in the thousands. This is a dangerous condition. Patients don't just die because of the condition, but patients are affected because we know that obesity affects almost every organ system in the body in a negative way. And it's those that, that effect on those other organ systems that causes this significant decrease in life expectancy that we see in our patients. So, as a bariatric surgeon, I certainly feel strongly that this is a condition that I think we really need to look hard on how, on, on the lack of treatment for a lot of patients. We, as bariatric surgeons, don't see nearly in the number of patients that we should see or that we can help. So I certainly could go organ system by organ system and give you a long list of of the um, comorbidities, but we structured this talk a little bit differently. I have Dr. Nguyen here who's actually going to take the screen and go through this in a slightly different way. Hopefully, it'll be a little bit more entertaining than that long list of medical problems. Dr. Nguyen? All right.
1: All right, can you guys see the screen okay? All right, I'd like to take a moment to welcome everyone. I appreciate everyone coming out. Um, And one of the things that Dr. Richard and I are very passionate about is bariatric surgery. And one of the biggest misconceptions for most medical physicians out there is that bariatric surgery is all about the weight loss. And what we're focusing on tonight and a slight bit of a twist of what I wanna do is actually present how bariatric surgery is actually metabolic surgery. So there there's certain medical conditions that I know that as medical providers you face every day and intuitively you're not thinking bariatric surgery so I'm, I'm going to try to give you a little twist on uh, a presentation that you commonly don't see when we're talking about weight loss just a few disclosures uh, on my financial affiliations um, and so objectives really quickly you know obviously we enjoy giving these talks mainly because of the open discussions Um, I'm looking forward to seeing how Zoom is going to help us with a chat box and later on having a a Q&A session. But, you know, one of the things that I've always found for myself on, like, learning new techniques or even learning uh, new ways of treatment is through clinical scenarios. And so I'm going to give you a few clinical scenarios from a medical standpoint. And then uh, hopefully we can kind of talk about how bariatric surgery not use... In the traditional bariatric way, you can use it to treat definitively some of these things. And by doing so, hopefully you'll have some pearls you can take away and, and remember in your own practice. Uh, and finally, obviously, um, I would love to give a shout out to our own system. As we do have some technology that is, is worth like, showing off. Um, with that being said, at the very end, like I said, we have plenty of time for Q&A. And so let's start off. You know, one of the most common scenarios, and I'm going to give you a clinical scenario: typical 40-year-old woman with an a adult-onset asthma. And you see this from time to time in your practice. You know, a woman who comes in with this chronic cough, and and it's kind of hard to treat. I mean, this patient is coming back with multiple bouts of bronchitis, and you're having to treat them with antibiotics and steroids and they've even been admitted multiple times uh, for pneumonia. Now she's complaining of hoarseness um, and changes of her voice. So when you start digging deeper, you send her to the pulmonologist and lo and behold, there's nothing revealing from a pulmonary standpoint. The cough seems to be unassociated with any medications like lisinopril. And so really you're still in the dark on what's really causing the cough. Next thing you know, you get a better history. She's not a smoker. There's no environmental factors in place. She doesn't have heart failure where she could have a call, no allergies, no nothing. So, and uh, from a GI standpoint, really she has zero reflux, no problems regurgitating, no problems swallowing. If anything, she's eats Mexican food, she'll take Tums and that'll be it. So, so right now you're kind of leaving it open. So you seek help from an ENT. And the ENT sees her and it's like, hey, everything's pretty unremarkable. So at this point, I mean, you know, obviously a chronic cough in your practice, I mean, this could be pretty much anything. But if you were to dive in deeper and say the ENT says, hey, listen, your vocal cords look a little inflamed. And that's what's causing most of your hoarseness and your cough. So it's kind of giving you a little bit of a hint on what could be going on. In this situation, reflux. Now, when we think of reflux, we always think of the more typical presentations, right? The heartburn, the indigestion, the pain, the burning, water brash But this is clearly a presentation that's not your typical presentation. It's more from the little micro aspirations that's causing inflammation of the vocal cords. And so when you talk about reflux, you know, fortunately, whether you're a patient of size or normal weight, Good thing is your initial treatment is the exact same. You start off by having them avoid the diets that would aggravate their reflux. You have them um, change their the way of eating, avoiding laying down early um, after eating, and avoiding tight fitting clothing, and and maybe starting them on like some medications like H2 blockers or P- proton pump inhibitor, and and basically you just monitor them and see how they react. In both categories, whether you're obese or non-obese, the workup is pretty much the same. You'll start off a swallow study, proceed with the EGD with possible biopsies, manometry to evaluate their uh, esophagus, and maybe even the pH monitoring. But here's where the main difference lies, though. When you're dealing with reflux in an obese patient versus a normal weight patient, unfortunately, they tend to be much more difficult to treat. Uh, Obviously from mechanical issues, the extrinsic pressure from their weight pushing down, worsening their reflux, worsening management for their reflux. You have a higher incidence of hiatal hernias in patients who are obese, up to 40% reported in the literature. In addition, even without any mechanical problems like a hiatal hernia, their lower esophageal sphincter uh, tends to be hypotensive, allowing a lot of acid to kind of splash in their esophagus. So it's pretty difficult to manage in a normal weight patient. Imagine now dealing with these obese patients. So just like anyone else, you start off um, conservatively. Next thing you know, when you've worn out your, uh, you've optimized their medical treatment, you've optimized um, life modifications and they're still suffering, you should consider surgery. Or patients who just can't take those medications long term, you should consider surgery. Or when you start having terrible issues like reflux esophagitis, or complications like such as bowel reflux, which by the way is a lot more costly than a- acid, uh, you should consider surgery. And finally, you know, one of the worst things we worry about is Barrett's esophagus. You know, even though the percent is less than one percent of forming cancer, it is something to worry about. So you should consider surgery. Um, and if they have a hiatal hernia and it's causing them difficulty swallowing, causing them pain when they swallow, you should consider surgery. So I guess the question is, what's the best surgery for reflux? Well, if you're a normal weight patient, acceptable weight patient, uh, a fundoplication or a toupee is your traditional anti-reflux procedure. But here's the catch. In our patient population who are obese, unfortunately, those surgeries just aren't the right surgeries. Uh, when you're dealing with a traditional reflux surgery, you do worry about the higher complication rates, and you do worry about the comorbidities that comes with their weight. And so when you do proceed with, say, a traditional Nissen in obese patients, you're really asking for problems because you do have a higher instance of that particular surgery failing. And when that happens, not only will the reflux comes back, now you're talking about worry about regurgitating or like vomiting food pretty often, having trouble swallowing. So in a way, you're almost making her, uh, the patient's symptoms worse in that situation. So be aware of these pa- uh, patients, it's a different population when managing reflux. So, I mean, you see reflux all the time, but until you get to that point where it's like, gosh, I have nothing left to do for you, you got to consider surgery. Now, obviously, in obese patients, the ideal surgery is not the Nissen. It's actually a gastric bypass. And, and let me explain why. With the gastric bypass, you know, it's not just about the weight loss. There's anatomical things that are occurring that basically induce a reflux relief right away. First of all, a small gastric pouch, guess what, makes very little acid. So there's automatically less reflux from that alone. The next thing you have is by the anatomy itself, you have a low pressure system. So all that acid and food doesn't sit in your pouch. It flows right through into your bowel. So it kind of diverts the acid away from the softness. Um, the root why, basically when you reconnect the bowel at number three, you're really diverting all that acid in the bowel completely away from your stomach, completely away from your esophagus, therefore relief of your symptoms. And finally, if there is a hiatal hernia, when you repair that diaphragm, guess what? You're restoring that first anatomical barrier to reflux. So all those things combined really helps to treat reflux in obese patients. Just as that. And also... Final note, the biggest fear with Barrett's esophagus where your reflux really gets out of hand, the gastric bypass is actually the best surgery uh, for that. Not only are you treating reflux and you're preventing further advancements of Barrett's esophagus, God forbid this patient does proceed with surgery. You're still preserving that stomach to act as a future conduit if the patient ever has cancer and needs an esophagectomy. So some of those things to keep in mind. Second vignette. Actually, this vignette, I'm going to cover two areas of medicines or medical issues that you, again, you may not think bariatric surgery intuitively on your initial pass. So, you're dealing with a 44-year-old gentleman with long-term diabetes. And just with many diabetics, you start off with one med, then you're on two meds, and now, unfortunately, it's getting out of hand and the guy's on insulin. Uh, you do worry because this particular patient his fasting glucose is out of hand his hemoglobin A1c is now 10 and the endocrinologist is actually very skeptical that you're able to manage the diabetes well so you are kinda stuck in a a spot in addition though this patient is also having weird GI symptoms Um, having abdominal pain even without eating he has this chronic nausea always feeling full Uh, even though he has abdominal bloating without eating he gets even worse symptoms with eating And in actuality, he's had a ton of workup. I mean, multiple CT scans, KUBs, uh, all those things, and nothing really shows anything. Uh, He's even had his gallbladder removed because it does kind of sound like your gallbladder in the past, and it still doesn't improve the symptoms. With that, he has a lot of heartburn, a lot of reflux. He regurgitates undigested food. And actually, when he vomits, he feels better, Okay. So already there's two complicating things here uncontrolled diabetes and this terrible pain or GI symptoms that he's having so what are we dealing with further workup upper endoscopy shows ball and food sitting all in the stomach and during the endoscopy his his muscle that controls how the stomach empty is pin tight 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 to the point where the scope doesn't even pass through so if you can guess what his diagnosis is um basically A gastric emptying study will tell you the answer. It's basically gastroparesis. So you do see gastroparesis overall in the general population. It's not often, but it's about 4 to 5%. But in your diabetics, you'll see it up to a third of the patients with gastroparesis. And the problem with gastroparesis is that the vagus nerve is paralyzing the stomach. It can affect the whole tract, GI tract, but where we see it the most is where the pylorus is paralyzed therefore all the food and all the fluid in the stomach just sits there and it sits there so it's like a water balloon just kind of getting larger and larger and larger it causes a lot of discomfort to the patient and they vomit to feel better and they feel better when it empties now the problem with gastroparesis there's a ton of medicines you can try and there's a ton of ways of failing Um, unfortunately it's it's pretty bleak on management of uh, gastroparesis medically and unfortunately patients have all these reactions to this medication so those of you who are very familiar with taking care of gastroparesis patients you have an allergy list that's like yay long i mean it's like you cannot have an antibiotic you cannot have a pain mess it's just ridiculous so you see that pretty often there are some procedures that you can do to treat gastroparesis that's not bariatric including like several endoscopy procedures where you dilate it up inject botox the whole idea is to loosen up that muscle but you know what, they've been known to fail. Even other surgeries where you cut the muscle and allow it to loosen up, it's known to fail as well. So literature supports what's the best surgery for gastroparesis? Well, it's, believe it or not, it's actually the gastric bypass or subtotal gastrectomy. It's the whole diverting of everything around the pylorus. Now the sleeve gastrectomy has shown some literature to be supportive of faster emptying, but even the gastric bypass is found to be more effective than the sleeve gastrectomy. And why is that? Just as I said, the main reason is that you're having trouble with the area of the stomach emptying. And by letting the food pass through the blue area, as you can see the bowel, you're no longer hitting that roadblock, so to speak. The food just passes right through, relief for the patients. And, and so you don't have that, that concern of the buildup of pressure in the stomach. So that's gastroparesis. What about diabetes? Of course, our traditional treatment of diabetes is education. Watching the patient closely, dieting, exercise, and medications, more medications, and then more medications, and weight loss, of course. Now, obviously, we're surgeons, we're biased, and we we think, yeah, surgery can help treat diabetes, but where does it fit in in our treatment uh, process, right? Well, the paradigm has always been about medicine and conservative, but you know what? There's a lot of literature out there that actually supports that there's something to surgery when it comes to treating diabetes. In fact, when we look at it, most of the literature looking at it now show that reproducible evidence that there will be improvement or resolution of diabetes with surgery. And it just happens to be that most of that literature happens to be with bariatric surgery. Now, there's other surgeries that it's been shown to do that that's non-weight-related, whether you have an antrectomy or for cancer or whatnot. But same principles. So what's all the hype? You know, when you think about weight, uh, bariatric surgery, you think weight loss surgery, right? You lose a ton of weight, you lose a ton of fat, and what's that going to do? It's going to basically make insulin sensitivity go up, decrease insulin resistance, with weight loss, improvement of diabetes over time, and eventually it just goes away, right? Wrong. No, no. It's not about the weight loss. It's not just about the weight loss. Because think of this, if it truly was about the weight loss, how is it so? that patients right after certain bariatric surgery that you can actually be euglycemic without medications but it's independent of weight loss like for instance you know having remission of diabetes not in months that you would expect where the weight loss has happened but actually in days where the patients maybe even consider still obese you know uh, over 30 percent of our patients will actually leave the hospital euglycemic and not taking diabetic meds again so Remission, you know, and think about this, the whole argument about fat being present, causing that insulin resistance and whatnot, like I said, you can have a bariatric patient who has a gastric bypass or do it in a switch, and guess what? Their BMI is still like 45 or 50, still very high, and yet they're in remission of their diabetes. So what is it then? Is it the weight loss? There's been literature that looked at that. Think about the, the, the studies that they've done where they looked at the gastric bypass, sleeve, band, and even conservative. Patients with all very similar amounts of weight with diabetes, and yet the gastric bypass in that particular study showed that it was superior to helping a resolution of diabetes. So there's something to it more than the weight loss because all these techniques, you lose about the same amount of weight. So what, what is it about it? Why is it superior to medicine? Well, the answer is, you have to remember, it's not about weight loss. It's actually, you have to remember that the stomach, not the stomach, but the GI tract itself, is a neuroendocrine er organ. It produces a ton of hormones, healthy and unhealthy hormones, and it's all stimulated by food. So, just to kind of demonstrate some of the key hormones, just imagine the GI tract, okay, and all the steps of the GI tract where there's certain hormones that affect diabetes. So if you have food and you swallow your food and it goes down your esophagus, the very first organ is the stomach, obviously that's going to produce certain hormones. Ghrelin. We all know ghrelin is like the devil. It makes you hungry when you're fasting and it decreases fat metabolism. But something that you may not know about ghrelin is that ghrelin actually worsens diabetes. It increases cortisol levels in the body, it decreases insulin sensitivity, and guess what? It drives your sugars up. So ghrelin is a bad player for multiple reasons now if you follow the food from the stomach and it empties into the small bowel there's a group of hormones called anti-incretins, and your duodenum will actually be stimulated by food to produce these hormones unfortunately these hormones act to decrease insulin secretion it'll decrease your insulin sensitivity by your organs therefore worsening your diabetes so those are like two main areas where diabetes worsens uh, by food now on the flip side What's good, though, your GI tract does make healthy hormones. Uh, GLP-1 hormone is produced by uh, cells in your ileum way, way further down, and it gets stimulated by undigested food. Bonus things that it does, it actually suppresses your appetite, so it does help you lose weight. Uh, But here's the beautiful thing on how it affects your metabolism and diabetes. Increases insulin secretion and synthesis. It increases beta cell production. It decreases the rate of beta cell death. It decreases glucagon, improves, it, improves the way your liver metabolizes glucose, and it increases insulin sensitivity. So if you look at this slide on the far right side, you can see all the effects that uh, GLP-1 does that helps diabetes, but you can see why it's often referred to as the wonder hormone because it does a lot for the body in other places as well. So pharmacology wise, you know, for medicines, how do you get more GLP-1? Well, there's a ton of medicines out there that show GLP-1's the way to go. Whether it's GLP-1 agonist or it's preventing the enzyme from breaking down GLP-1 in the body. So you have a higher GLP-1 level to help with diabetes. And these are all diabetic meds. So, direct mechanism. How does the gastric bypass or metabolic surgery help diabetes directly? Well, first things first, when you restrict how much you're eating to 800 calories a day, automatically your diabetes is going to improve as is but the very first thing it does when you're creating that tiny little pouch well guess what you're cutting the nerve that goes to that old stomach you don't have that ghrelin production remember ghrelin is a bad player you take out ghrelin guess what the pro-diabetic effects of ghrelin is gone as well the next mechanism is now you're excluding the foregut so everywhere you see in the yellow where food used to go in the dewey Didim, it no longer sees food so this part of the area is no longer stimulating the anti incretin hormones that are making diabetes worse so it's already getting better from that alone. But if you remember that wonder hormone, the GLP-1, by allowing that small bowel that's further down, we reconnect it to the stomach, that tiny little pouch. So now, when the patients eat five to six tiny meals, every time it eats, it's producing GLP-1. So you're like basically your patient is like a GLP-1 factory. It's helping us diabetes right from the get-go. So those are the hormonal mechanisms for um, diabetes. So just a couple of quick definitions, not to go uh, a deep dive in this, but resolution of diabetes versus improvement of diabetes from the ADA. So looking at the literature, what does it show? Just to sum up a few of the procedures, the band, the sleeve, the bypass, and the do it in switch in the order of effectiveness, and it's also in the order of the um, amount of metabolism change that occurs. Uh, unfortunately, the band is the complete opposite, it actually increases ghrelin and it doesn't have a metabolic benefit, but from the sleeve, the gastric bypass in the sleeve in that order is more effective in in treating diabetes. So what are some of the factors in diabetes that would help predict remission for our patients, right? So some of the things that taken out of the literature, if you look at it, all the studies that looked at it, you will have hundred percent either improvement or resolution in your diabetes. The first thing they looked about is the duration of diabetes and the first thing you want to make notice patients who've been diagnosed five years or less statistically would have about 95 percent resolution or remission of diabetes other studies looked at severity for the patients who unfortunately have progressed to the point where on insulin you can see at 62 percent their percent of uh resolution or remission is a lot less than pre-diabetics or even patients who are on one or two medications so once you get on insulin it's, it's, it's serious, and so you have a less incidence. And then, basically, overall, you're talking about close to a 99% improvement, 87% uh, remission overall, and some of the takeaways. okay? So if, you're, if you have patients who have diabetes greater than 10 years, guess what? Lower rates of remission. So if you have patients who are on insulin, you have lower rates of remission. And so if you have older patients, you have lower rates of remission of diabetes. Uh, other things they found, male patients tend to have a lower rate of remission, and uh, people with lower BMI's preoperatively tend to have the lower rates of remission. So what do you take out of this slide? Well, the lessons to learn from the literature is this, okay? Diabetes is progressive and it's difficult with time. So if you're going to do your patient a favor, you got to understand that traditional management over a prolonged period of time, you just allow the pancreas to burn itself out, Okay? By allowing the pancreas to burn and kill off more beta cells, it's going to be harder to put the patient in remission. So what are the recommendations? There's evidence to show that you really want to intervene early, surgically, to have the higher likelihood of uh, diabetes remission. Okay, so that means that trying to intervene with less than five years of a diagnosis prior to the patient needing insulin and basically younger patients. If you have the younger patients those are the ones that we can help you know I have to have a frank conversation with my patients who are coming in 67 years old and is on insulin and you have to have a candid conversation when they say hey I want to go in remission well you start throwing out percentages and it's like listen I mean this is the fact your pancreas has been burned over the years so that's it with the diabetes. Now, one of the things, just to quickly, I really, really want to show off about our system. I'm very proud of the robotic systems that we have. So one of our latest and greatest technologies that we have in our hospital is robotics. But the fact is, is that it's not the latest and greatest, not really. Because in actuality, one of the things that Dr. Richard and I are very proud of is that we've actually been doing robotics for a very long time, since 2008. We actually did the very first robotic gastric bypass in Georgia in our hospital. Dr. Rich and I are both um, center of excellence robotic surgeons. Uh, we have that designation for the whole center of uh, center of excellence for robotic surgery and minimally invasive surgery. And I actually happen to be a uh, center of excellence of the hernia surgery as well. Now, as far as I like, robotics, we do enough of it that we love to teach as well. I mean, we teach surgeons of all levels from Residence training. Uh, Also, we provide like taste observation for both domestic and international surgeons who've come to watch us do robotic surgery. And so just to kind of give you some background on robotics, you know, it went from having a big old cut, which is morbid, to tiny little cuts with laparoscopic, and now a merge of the two. Robotics. The best of both worlds. Tiny little incisions, but being able to manipulate on the inside as if you had your hands on the tissue. Now, some of the key things about the technology is a beautiful 3D look from the camera. Even better, a beautiful 3D look on the monitor that the surgeon sits at, and they can see everything and control everything uh, away from the bedside. And just to kind of give you an idea, there's little finger controls that we use, and the manipulation of our fingers and wrists basically is translated to the instruments in the body. So you use these tiny little instruments on the inside to do all your surgery you know and one of the things is I'm a right-handed guy the beautiful thing about robotics is that you really learn how to use both hands pretty fluently hence it's almost like you having an open platform inside the body with tiny incisions and selfishly for myself I love it because I'm really comfortable when I operate I can operate all day and not feel tired Uh, I have four kids and I have have enough energy to relieve my wife at the end of the day right so she won't be mad at me so I, I operate all day I sit at the console During the the case, I'm not really relying on my assistant that much. I'm able to move instruments around myself, control retraction, control the camera. So, it it is something I do enjoy. So, just to give a short demonstration on robotics and some of the things that it can be done. Obviously, not only just surgery, but origami, right? Um, One of the things that I wanted to demonstrate on this particular video It's just the precision of like manipulating paper, as delicate as paper is. And in this robotic system, you can see what we're trying to make already um, in in doing this video, right? So we're making a a paper bird, and you can see how even down to each, every fold and every crease, how precise it can really be. Now, the funny thing is, is anytime you look at a video or look at a picture, you really have to keep in perspective what you're really looking at yeah it's a paper bird and yes i could probably do that by hand but one thing i can't do if you keep it in perspective is making a paper bird relative to the size of that penny it's pretty cool right in addition just to show off the robot i wanted to share some of the scenarios where the robot really is worth its weight in gold here i'm demonstrating a quick video where patients had a ton of surgery in the abdomen. And this is one of the surgeon's worst nightmares. When you go in and you can't see anything because there's so much scar tissue, everything's just plastered. Sometimes you just, the fear of like getting into the stomach, fear of like punching into the liver or the spleen, it still has to be done. So just showing off some of the instruments that we use in the OR, this is an instrument called a harmonic scalpel. It's an excellent uh, device where you can use to dissect here I'm using it to cut down a lot of scar tissue to quickly free up the area and so that I can actually see what I'm doing and to help me identify some of the things that's crucial. Um, and Dr. Richard, uh, he, he can tell you when you're doing these things after someone else has been there. It's like a bomb blew off in there and you're trying to make heads and tails from it. But here you can see where we're quickly taking down the adhesions to try to identify the stomach and the, the liver and here you you're getting close to where the stomach is and you can see where there's really not a clean plane between the stomach and the the liver so injuries are very very likely to happen in scenarios like this but as you can see the device uh, does really well and that's the beautiful thing about robotics here is that there's a lot of tools and toys that you can use to help make your job better because this is the type of surgery when you're going in to do a revision it could take you three to four times the amount of time To actually do it and it it does carry a heavier uh, or a higher rate of complications without it here you can see demonstrating the scissors and as as i showed you before that stomach is completely plastered against the liver using the the scissors with a little bit of energy and no energy you can pretty much clean up that plane really fast and again this is all about safety this is all about being effective on like getting the anatomy uh, exposed to you in a safe way without injuring anything around. And this is something like, uh, like I said, uh, allowing yourself to have a whole list of things to kind of use. You know, each tool can be used in multiple ways. And, and this is one of those things that even laparoscopically, if I had to do this case laparoscopically, I would still have to use the scissors. But you can see where I'm kind of angling the scissors in every single direction as I need because of that wrist and finger action here. So. Uh, is really nice and you can see how how this should be bleeding a lot and so with the the technology I'm able to control the bleeding as I'm dissecting and working my way through so this case could you know like I said usually take a a while to do but it it comes down nicely as this demonstrates so the other device obviously um, conveniently named is the hook robotic hook Uh, I use this instrument a lot it has TTTT tiny tip and I use this instrument to not only just dissect but here you can see me making the openings in the, the, the small pouch in the stomach that's been created and I'll use it to, to create a small hole in the stomach, I mean the small bowel as well. So it's very precise. It uses energy so one, I'm trying to minimize bleeding as well. So uh, again, it's just one of many tools that we have available. Uh, I didn't have anything specifically mentioned, but you can see the, the other instrument kind of holding the suture out of the way and suspending it for me. Again, another one of the advances of robotics where I'm basically doing the surgery almost by myself here. Now, this tool, I can tell you, the stapler, is a godsend. I mean, from the first, you know, even doing it open, Dr. Richard will tell you, is miserable living life without a stapler. But this thing, as you can see, as you're dividing bowel, it'll lay down rows of staple to kind of seal it. And it also has a blade that will actually cut right through it. So you're able to transect bowel. Um, and here, I'm able to like, manipulate it in all different angles. Uh, in this particular case, I'm cutting out this ulcer uh, that had formed. And it creates such a narrowing that the patient just wasn't able to eat or drink anything. And so here, it, you can see like all the inflammation around, I'm dividing it with the stapler. And the stapler is really nice because it's very smart It knows when you're cramping down too much tissue or too little tissue, but as you can see, it does a pristine job as far as uh, stapler through. I mean, it maintains, you know, minimizes bleeding. And this is a pretty miserable surgery to do, uh, whether it's laparoscopic or open. But, like I said, I'm biased, but doing it robotically is is actually kind of fun. Um, Nice little clean staple on. And probably the final thing I wanted to show you robotically, which is pretty cool, is, you know, one of the things we really appreciate about robotics is being able to sew. Dr. Rich and I use the same technique. Where we're, where we're doing our gastric bypass, creating this communication. And you know, I mean, doing it laparoscopically is fun and challenging. But there's some there times where, you know, whether you don't have the right assistant to just kind of show you exactly what you need to see, or just have the right retraction. This is one of those things where uh, sewing is beautiful. I mean, here, I'm sewing a, the pouch on your left-hand side, screen left, to the small bowel on the right side. And I'm just going to sew them together and create a communication between the two. But as you can see, the needle driver is not stiff. It's not uh, completely straight. You can actually articulate it. So it doesn't matter how I grab the needle. I can always adjust it to to my liking to throw the perfect stitch each and every time. Um, So that's pretty much it as far as suturing. So takeaways or conclusions we talked about reflux but specifically reflux in our obese patients can present typically uh the same or you know classically or atypically so just kind of keep that in mind um one thing to remember though obese patients should not be undergoing anti-reflux procedures you're asking for them to have complications from it and guess what a major, a uh, huge part of my practice is fixing those things so patients who've had Nissen's, they're being sent to me and now I'm having to subject them to an even bigger surgery to convert them to a bypass from a Nissan. So that's a that's a pretty um, uh, serious surgery to fix. In addition, people who are suffering from reflux who happen to be obese, they really do need the gastric bypass. It's the best surgery for them. Uh gastroparesis, we talked about it. You're dealing with terrible, difficult GI symptoms caused by vagal nerve dysfunction. And guess what? conservative therapy is usually pretty futile and when you're basically not for weight loss but the gastric bypass basically you know getting around that pylorus is the ultimate way of treating patients with gastroparesis they'll get relief almost immediately and diabetes you know obviously I love talking about surgical treatment for diabetes because I think the paradigm of treatment of diabetes has definitely kind of gravitated towards surgical because we know what it can do basically the best odds for remission for diabetes as literature shown early intervention you got to get the patient's treatment with surgery to help fix the hormonal changes to fix the and preserve the pancreas as much as possible the longer you wait for the patients to kind of see how they do the more the beta cells exhaust themselves and 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 basically burn out and so, and the, the final thing about the diabetes is forget about the weight loss the main mechanism for diabetes remission is not in the weight loss but it's in the hormones themselves robotic surgery one final shout out to my hospital is basically we do have this technology and guess what we've been doing it for a while so other hospitals are like obviously marketing themselves as robotics that's great because they know where the technology is at we just been doing it for a while and, and we put it not only in our primary cases, but we do our most difficult cases with it as well, these revisional cases. It makes the surgeries faster, easier, safer, with less complications. A lot of our patients who have the surgery done robotically actually go home the same amount of time as a primary gastric bypass or sleeve or whatnot. And, and so it does help make surgery safer. And it's not the latest and hottest thing because we've been doing it for a while. All right, thank you.
0: All right, Thank you, Dr. Nguyen. I'm going to try to take the screen back. Um, I wanted to pile on with the diabetes, but I want to pile on with uh, something a little bit different. This is a great study out of New England Journal of Medicine that shows improvement in hemoglobin A1C with maximum medical therapy, with gastric bypass, and with another operation that she touched upon called the biliopancreatic diversion. Now, that's an operation that not a lot of surgeons in the United States have gravitated to, but I think with the advent of the, with, with the amount of sleeves that we're doing, certainly this is a newer operation that will be in our armamentarium, and I've been performing these uh, biliopancreatic diversions for about five or six years now. And I can tell you they really do make a big difference, but it's a complicated operation. So I've got a little animation to kind of go through this. It can be done laparoscopic, but as Dr. Wen mentioned, most of us are using the robotic technique to make this a much easier operation. I do think it is, it is very technically challenging. And with that challenge, um, typically comes a little bit of a higher complication rate, but in the right hands, this is a, this is a game-changing operation for some patients. So the duodenal switch, it, com- it is comprised of a sleeve gastrectomy. So we start off by doing a sleeve. It's actually a little bit larger of a sleeve than we normally do. Um, and at the conclusion of the sleeve, we change gears. We're going to transect the duodenum just p- distal to the pylorus. We then will march down the intestine and we will separate the small intestine at the distal one-third. So we're gonna use the last third of the small intestine as the GI tract. We're gonna bring that one-third of the intestine, which is the ileum, and we're gonna attach it to the duodenum. Food enters into your normal sleeve or slightly larger sleeve, crosses the pylorus, into the ilium and only travels down about 300 or 250 centimeters of bile. Now that green limb is your biliopancreatic limb. And it's a lot longer than the gastric bypass biliopancreatic limb, it's about two thirds of the GI tract. And as you see, we reattach that downstream about hundred centimeters from the colon. So bile and pancreatic enzymes will travel down that limb and only join intestinal contents at the very end. So this is a malabsorptive procedure. It gets weight loss because it's a restrictive procedure with the sleeve. We do have some loss in growing with the sleeve, but it is a malabsorptive procedure. We're gonna have some significant abnormalities in um, vitamins if they're not replaced. So the it on switch typically can be done laparoscopic or robotic in one or two stages. And I'll back up for a second. Two stage sleeve was a two stage duodenal switch was thought of back in the early 2000s when surgeons were trying to do this operation laparoscopically and the the equipment just wasn't there. So we began by doing some of these operations as a sleeve and two years later coming back and completing the duodenal switch. But what they found was about 80% of patients never needed the malabsorptive component. So that certainly was the beginning of the sleeve gastrectomy as a standalone procedure. So 20%, however, still needed the completion. I think that's what we're seeing today. A lot of our patients that are having the standalone sleeve, uh, some patients will get the expected weight loss, but some patients will, will struggle or lag behind. And those patients can certainly benefit from adding that malabsorption at a time before they've started to regain the weight. So a lot of us Uh, surgeons that had gravitated to doing a lot of sleeves are using that as a a second stage for the right patient. And this operation certainly can be done as one stage. And that one stage DS is usually for our our larger patients because this operation is going to get a lot of weight loss. It's going to get 75 to 80% excess weight loss. going to get better weight loss than the other procedures that we do have. It's got a better long-term track record with almost all programs showing at least a 60% long-term weight loss. With that, we are gonna have more complications. It is a higher complication rate operation. It does have two anastomosis. It does, we do have to run the entirety of this, almost the entirety of the small intestine. We do have a duodenal stump, which you don't have with the other procedures. So there are other things that we have to to deal with. The bigger issue is vitamin deficiencies. Um, These patients are gonna have vitamin A, D, E, and K, which are those fat soluble vitamin deficiencies. We're still gonna worry about iron, calcium, and protein. So, this really is not the operation for our patient that you're gonna, that you're a little worried about with follow up. So, this patient, patient selection is a big key with the duodenal switch. Another disadvantage with the DS is, is reflux. Um, you can do a sleeve gastrectomy on a patient with, with some reflux and sometimes get away with it. But if you don't and that patient has severe reflux, you can always convert that sleeve to a gastric bypass for treatment. And I think Alex will tell you, we do a fair amount of that. But this operation, you don't want to do in somebody who has the potential for having bad reflux because converting this to a gastric bypass really isn't an option. Um, and finally, these patients, because they're going to have such a short and small intestinal tract, they're going to have diarrhea, uh, especially if they eat the wrong vein. Um, and it can be pretty foul smelling. And it could be they can have some trouble with long-term flatulence. However, that's usually diet controlled the vast majority of the patients typically have between one and four bowel movements a day and feel pretty comfortable. So this really is the best overall short-term and long-term weight loss operation that we have. These patients typically will tell you they feel like they can eat almost a normal diet. It is the most effective treatment for diabetes. It's very effective for sleep apnea, hypertension, and hyperlipidemia. So it is an operation that a lot of us are doing more and more of. And, um, So you're going to start seeing this as a a procedure that your patients are choosing and that we're helping them to get through. So looking at all the surgical options that we have in our program, just to be complete, we do have an option of something called an intragastric balloon that can be utilized for some patients to lose weight. The weight loss typically in my hands with the balloons between, I don't know, 30 and 55 pounds. It's a temporary balloon. Gastric band removal, most of us are not placing bands. We're taking them off. Um, if you have a patient with a band who's got complications, we definitely will, r- would recommend removing. Sleeve gastrectomy, gastric bypass, and bilio diversion of duodenal switch. One more thing I'll tell you about the, the duodenal switch is that there are newer procedures that are being done that are what we call loop duodenal switches. They typically aren't covered by by insurance yet. Hopefully, that'll be Coming, but that's where instead of doing the lower anastomosis, we bring a loop up to the duodenum. Typically, we're gonna see a little bit less um, uh, vitamin A, D, E, and K uh, deficiencies with that operation with similar weight loss. But uh, the, the, in my mind, the jury's still out. And as uh, Dr. Wen mentioned, we do a heck of a lot of revisional bariatric surgery. And it's becoming a bigger part of most of our practices. And I certainly think that revisional bariatric surgery is not a surgery for a young, new surgeon. That typically needs to be done in a a setting um, like ours. Who's a candidate? Candidates for bariatric surgery are BMI greater than 35 with medical problems. Um, And that may be a patient that you don't recognize as a bariatric surgical patient. You may have a patient with BMI is 37 and they really look normal, but they're. You're about to put them on an insulin pump. That patient, as Alex alluded to, that patient really does need a chance at something that can get rid of that diabetes. Um, any patient with BMI of 40 or, or higher typically is a bariatric candidate. We also want these patients to be healthy enough to go undergo an operation. Um, certainly want to be absence of drug or alcohol problems. I typically do not operate on smokers. I have been, they have to quit. I, we will test their nicotine levels. That is a must. And I do not operate on patients that are on chronic steroids. There's really good evidence that chronic steroid is a major risk factor for complications in bariatric surgery. We certainly do some psychological testing in our patients um, and they really need to understand that this is a multidisciplinary process. are not gonna just see the surgeons. There are a lot of people that are involved in their care, not just for the short term, but for the long term. The truth about surgery, it's successful but not perfect. We rely on patient selection. We rely on patient counseling before and after surgery. And really, we rely heavily on our multidisciplinary team. Yeah, some surgeries may need to be revised. Of course, everyone's seen that patient with a gastric bypass who's regained their weight. Maybe they've may not regained it all, but they've regained some, and they they are struggling metabolically again. Well, this is a chronic, relapsing disease. Um, but most of us in bariatric surgery don't give up. We will find ways to help that patient, whether or not we're gonna add them to our medical weight loss program, or if there is something wrong with their anatomy that we can fix surgically, we certainly can offer that for the right patient in the right condition. Yes, we do revisions, and we certainly will incorporate all of our medical treatment options for these patients. But the fact of the matter is, If you look at the overwhelming majority of our patients, they're happy that they've gone through this. They're healthier than they were before. And the majority of them really don't want to look back. We are a bariatric center. Um, We've got the designations from the Surgical Review Corporation in the past and MBS-AQIP currently. We were one of the first bariatric surgical centers in the state of Georgia to get the SRC certification back when it first came out as Dr. Wynn alluded to, we certainly were the first with Dr. Wynn's robotic bariatric procedures, the first bariatric center in the state. Well, these surgeries should be done in the center with specially trained surgeons and that's what we are. We have a great aftercare program and support that supports both my practice and Dr. Wynn's practice. It's uh, run by Amy Smith, and if you're looking for sending patients to a centralized area to find significant education, whether you don't have to worry about the pressures of being in the doctor's office, this is it. She does a great job of pre- preoperative as well as postoperative education. We've got dietary therapy there. Um, we, have a, sorry, we have a behavioral therapist. We have a dietitian, physical activities, cooking classes, clothing closet support groups, The hospital is giving us a significant amount of support for this program because it is a community helper, and it is is essential for the long-term success of our patients. This is how you can contact the uh, Bariatric Center. This is her number, and that's the the website, ndhs.com bariatrics. And I think I've come to our final slide. This is the slide that you need to use to claim any CMEs from our talk today. And I guess I need to find out if we've got any questions that have been submitted to us. Or is anyone, are there any questions now?
1: I guess we did such a good job
0: explaining everything, there's no questions.